0: Welcome to Essential Ethics and this recording from the 2020 National Paediatric Bioethics Conference. I'm your podcast host, Professor John Massey, Clinical Director of the Royal Children's Hospital, Children's Bioethics Centre. The COVID-19 pandemic has forced us to address some unresolved clinical issues in a hurry. In this debate, we ask, how should new treatments be introduced in a pandemic? Debating this issue... A Dr Joe Briley, Paediatric Intensive Care Specialist from Great Ormond Street Hospital, London, who has been at the forefront of treating sick children with COVID-19. His opponent is Professor David Archard, moral philosopher and chair of the United Kingdom Nuffield Council on Bioethics. Joe Briley argues for the provision of evidence-based care and science, while David Archard argues the sick child in front of you needs the best treatment now. It's a fascinating debate that leaves one swinging in favour of one speaker and then the other. The speakers are introduced by Dr Sarah Aylott from Great Ormond Street Hospital, London. The session is moderated by Professor Lynn Gillam, Academic Director of the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. Chat questions are curated by Dr Georgina Hall from the Children's Bioethics Centre. Let's get into this marvellous debate.
1: The debate is how should new treatments be introduced for children in a pandemic? Dave is going to argue the child has the right to the best treatment available. Joe is going to argue that decisions regarding new treatments should be based on scientific evidence. Dave, would you like to start?
2: I'm going to start with Article 24 of the UN Convention on the Rights of the Child, which I would remind you both the UK and Australia have both signed and ratified. And that accords to every child the right to the highest attainable standard of health and to facilities for the treatment of illness and the rehabilitation of health. So doctors are under a clear professional obligation always to strive to do the very best they can for any child that presents. Now, in some circumstances, especially with those when a child has a very serious condition, and all available forms of treatment have been tried. It may be appropriate to offer, and there are a variety of terms, the Nuffield Council was somewhat amused by the huge variety of terms that are used in this context, each of which may be question making innovative, novel, unproven, unvalidated, non-standard, unlicensed, experimental. And it may also be the case when it's not possible to have access to clinical trials Uh, which being lengthy and complex processes may simply be too far down the road and not immediately available. I think that should only be done after a careful evaluation of all the available alternatives and of the risks of providing such treatment. It should be done with a full awareness of what might be possible and not possible and an honest, clear-headed presentation of the options to the relevant parties. One standard worry about enrolling individuals in any trial or experiment is that of informed consent and whether it's been properly obtained. But in the case of very young children, clearly that worry about consent does not obtain. But that's true both for participation in trials and the use of experimental treatment. Equally, in both cases, it would be normal for parents to agree to the treatment, albeit noting that worries about how, they disagree, how their agreement is obtained um, and also about what we should do in the case of disagreement between the doctor and patient. At the end of the day, we should always act in the child's best interest. I think there are two errors of prioritization. One is that in the context of a pandemic, we should give priority to trials over experimental treatments. I don't see any reason not to have recourse to both. There's also a second error of thinking, as I said earlier, that only uh, COVID 19 cases should be treated. And that seems to me erroneous. We should uh, give the best health care to a child, whatever their condition. One key difference of ethical importance between trials and experimental treatment is that the former trials are directed either in part or sometimes wholly to the good of children other than the one being treated, since the point of the trial is to gain knowledge that will be of benefit to future children with the same condition. That at least runs the ethical risk of treating the child within a trial as a means to the end of other children's good. Whereas with experimental treatment, it's a one-off intended to be of benefit to this particular child and no other. Now, of course, that raises the problem that experimental treatments may not generate any useful knowledge that could benefit anyone else. However, that may well be a problem of how those treatments are reported and how their outcomes are shared. It need not be a problem as such of trying something unproven. There may also be a problem of equity of access to such treatments, but that equally is a problem for clinical trials, which may not be freely available to all who might benefit from their participation. At the end of the day, it is the best interest of the child that is our primary, and some would say paramount, concern. And sometimes, very rarely, it's in the best interest of a child to try something that has not been proved or tested or tried.
1: Okay, thank you. Um, Joe, would you like to respond?
3: Okay. So... Decisions regarding new treatments in a pandemic should be based on the scientific evidence. Well, yeah, obviously. I think I'm done, am I, Dave? (laughs) What we're talking about, really, is Professor Archer's snake oil treatment. Dave, are you still there? (laughs) Oh, yes. It took me ages to get this worked out. (laughs) Treatments we knew worked historically. Episiotomy, some of us of a certain age will remember... Doing obstetrics and gynaecology and cutting women's perineums to prevent problems only when evidence based medicine proved that this was harmful to women did we stop doing it similarly calcium in cardiac arrest situations as a resuscitation drug bed rest after a myocardial infarction they both get you to meet this man but i spent my house jobs doing those very treatments Only when you actually collect the evidence in formally structured, randomised controlled trials, can you prove treatments that are harmful and stop giving them to people in the future. Similarly, other things that uh, evidence bases have helped to sort out are the smoking debacle, because many doctors advocated smoking for many years. I agree with Dave entirely. Children have a right not to be harmed. Um, We have the horrendous... Uh, experience of thalidomide we currently and I've had to take this for for you guys to press situations from Australia the recent Samoan measles outbreak where a failure to adhere to evidence-based medicine in terms of vaccination has led to the deaths of children and ladies uh, in that country and that's happened in Europe too in terms of deaths of measles uh, caused uh, diseases in children in Italy and again, a similar, a very, very good paper from the Children's Hospital in Melbourne in 2010, I think it was, looking back at the harmful quack therapies which had led to the deaths of children. So, serious problems with some of these unproven attempts at remedies. What's that going to do with COVID, you ask? It's a bit harsh. Well, here we go. Here's one of my ethical heroes.
2: Reports that say there's, that, that, that something hasn't happened are always interesting to me because... As we know, there are known knowns. There are things we know we know. We also know there are known unknowns. That is to say, we know there are some things we do not know. But there are also unknown unknowns. The ones we don't know, we don't know.
3: I'm sure an appeal to Donald Rumsfeld against the moral philosophers uh, really not going to work, but it's worth a try. Uh, early in COVID, children rarely needed treatment, but got lots of it. So the treatments on the left, are treatments that were used in Italy, uh, France, UK, plasma exchange, antivirals, anti-clotting drugs, hydroxychloroquine, massive immunosuppression, with no randomised control trial, no stratification, no chance of learning from this anecdotal treatment. In the adult unit I worked in for six weeks, no patient got treatment outside a randomised control trial. So the UK did very well from doing very badly in a pandemic, in learning what treatments might help populations. Uh, fortunately for us, it was very rare for children to do badly with either COVID infection or MISC. but that meant, of course, the treatments on the left all worked, or did they? We were equally culpable, as Sarah mentions, remdesivir and steroids to a sick child in front of you. We did do a second opinion ethics. It reduced the viral load, but there's no randomization. Did that treatment work? Did it not work? Do we know? Was it necessary? And um, We even have now a situation the NHS has just launched a pharmacokinetics of understudied drugs as the children in the pandemic. We don't know what we're doing because we've not been able to randomise. Um, some of Dave's allies on the left, you can see, um, Stella Emanuel, uh, an advocate of hydroxychloroquine, uh, suggesting that treatment's proven to work in her experience for COVID. Uh, she, of course, also, and, and this is open public domain stuff, Uh, thinks that uh, alien DNA is being injected by people uh, to try and change the human genome, and also thinks that uh, we have infections with spirits causing some diseases, as well as uh, uh, DNA and and vaccines against religion being put into place. Had to throw that one in Lynn from uh, past times. And of course President Trump, he's sure malaria, uh, anti-malarial drugs, hydroxychloroquine works very well because he's taken it and he hasn't died of Covid. Versus, I think, who should be our hero on the right, Forsey from the NIH. Wonderful quote. We know that every single good study, and by good study, I mean randomized control study, has shown that hydroxychloroquine is not effective in the treatment. Only by randomized control trials can you show that. And this issue is that kind of the right to try, and we have the innovation bill in the UK, which really came to nothing. But the quite difficult bill on the right in the US, with Trump, again, the populist, desire to let people choose their treatments and get rid of all the kind of restrictions from treatments in the way very interesting stuff and there's that legalizing the old Berinsky practice of anti-neoplastons treatment that doesn't work but being sold at huge expense to people with cancer always empowering terminally seriously ill people Um, and the idea there's a right to try as Dave talked about versus child protection from experimental and prolonged dying. Uh, what works for COVID? Well, actually, one of the few things uh, we've done well in the UK, and there are not many in COVID, is we have had the only serious randomized controlled trial with 12,000 patients. That has given us answers to these questions. Dexamethasone, does it help if you're on a ventilator? Yes. Do the other antivirals help? No. Does hydroxychloroquine help you if you have COVID? No, and, and studies by the French group and WHO have all founded really on the fact they've tried multiple permissions in different countries and have not recruited patients. And uh, one of our our CMO there, who's a much pillarage figure in the UK, again, use of treatments outside of a trial where participation possible is a wasted opportunity. Quite right. So we have this three-pronged attack, a purest rational approach I'm advocating for. We restrict any non-proven treatments until there's an RCT with protections in place. What I kind of, you know, do what I uh, say, not what I did. Treat with best informed guests, discuss MBT and second opinions, but report the outcome. That doesn't give you any answers in the long term. Versus the populist approach, let the people have what they want, get rid of, let people have what they want, get rid of all these restrictions. I understand, is that, is that the Nuffield Council, Dave? Is it you that chair that still? That's right, isn't it? Um, proper research with children is backed by the Nuffield Recau- Research Council, Research with children should be the norm to study children's treatments. Make them a fair offer. Get the data from working with children. Extrapolating adult data to work out what's to do with children is just historically should be binned. And um, we need to protect children from unknown unknowns. N equals one means we will never learn. I will concede there is a place in rare disease treatment when you have one child with that disease, but not in COVID 19. This is a multi patient disease process you could easily randomize treatments conclusion children have a right to evidence-based treatments best guess will never lead to optimal future treatments we're withholding possibly beneficial treatment but also possibly harmful treatments there is no right to snake oil and just to finish Aronson put it beautifully the idea, the concept of the first six patients to receive a new drug procedure operation should be randomised stems from that pernicious influence of pilot trials in getting rid of treatments that did work. I used it in one patient, it didn't work, get rid of it, that drug may be helpful across a population. And that was Tom Chalmers talking about randomising the first patient, Altman, the control groups in an SRE, and Tony Bradford Hill famously make blind assessments wherever possible. Data, 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 he cried impatiently. I can't make bricks without clay. There you go.
4: Okay, thank you. So what I took from that interchange, Dave and Joe, was Dave seemed to be arguing that the individual child who has the, the, um, the medical condition, whatever it is, and doesn't have other forms of treatment that are, are known to work, has a right to try, essentially, that new treatment because they don't have other options. Uh, So they've got a right to take a chance on getting some benefit. Whereas uh, Joe seemed to be arguing that what was more important was not that individual child, but children more broadly, in particular other children with the same disease in the future and protecting them from uh, snake oil and other harmful treatments are the things which might turn out to be harmful and we'll never know that they're harmful unless we have a clinical trial to give us that evidence so can i just check in both with uh joe and david to see if i've got you right on that is that the essence of the disagreement between you on the one hand focusing on the sick child in front of us on the other hand focusing on other sick children in the future and protecting them from harm
2: i think that's fair erlyn and i think um um there was some ethical snake oil what I was appealing to was the idea of, um, trials whose principal justification is the health of children other than those for whom, uh, the treatment is, is being, being used. And that does run a risk of simply treating that child in front of you as a means to the good of others. Whereas if you're trying an experimental treatment, your only focus is this particular children and uh, his or her good. I, can I just add that I think, um, uh, I love the example of Donald Rumsfeld. So, um, Remember that this was in the context of the Iraq war. And one of, the, um, one of the biggest problems is a failure to distinguish between the absence of evidence for something and the evidence for the absence of it. So, and I think also a serious failure to distinguish between enough evidence and no evidence. So it might well be the case that in an experimental treatment, uh, there is insufficient uh, evidence of a kind that would satisfy the scientific community. That doesn't mean there's no evidence for the efficacy uh, of that particular treatment. And remember, this is in the context of no other reasonable alternatives. And finally, I don't think there's a a zero-sum game. Either you do experimental treatment or you do RCPs. You can do both. The question is, if you can't do a trial, and here in front of you is a very sick child, do you acknowledge that child has a right to try one last form of treatment for which there may not be enough evidence?
4: Thanks, Uh, Joe. Just before we go on to you, um, I just want to give Dave a heads up that John Massey has a challenge, I think, to what you've just said. So Joe, can we hear from you? Then We'll go back to John.
3: Well, I think, yeah. I think the problem is you will never know if that treatment helped or harmed the child. So your treatment may well be harmful. Um, And I dispute entirely that COVID was a situation where you had to suddenly treat the child in front of you without any stratification randomization. So I think I, I, I conceded that in an N equals one situation where that child is the one child with that disease and we think it's the right way forward, fine. But you have a, a disease here with multiple children coming through the door. You can randomize very easily. You should sort out your intervention, stratify, randomize, and then you can work out what's gonna happen and get some data at least on efficacy, harms, benefits. I think that's the kind of the argument I'm making because I do not know, and I'm culpable of this, Should I give remdesivir to the next child that comes to the door at Great Ormond Street? Well, we gave it to every child and they all survived, so it must work. But other people didn't give it and every child survived. Other people did plasma exchange, more invasive in France, and that seemed to work. And some people gave another drug and the child died, not of that problem, but of COVID, because does that mean that drug didn't work? So it's all that kind of trying to get data. I think if you have the chance to get data, you must do so.
4: Thanks, Joe. Now let's see what Tom's concern is. Uh,
0: thanks. Um, th- thanks, and I feel like I'm about to enter the uh, the bear's cave here because uh, I know the great, you know, philosophical tradition is arguing with uh, dead philosophers, uh, and
3: yeah.
0: <laughs> I'm about to argue with a live one. So uh, this could be could be troublesome. But David, where I struggled a little bit with your debate and and even prior in your in your talk, is that you frame these innovative therapies, interventions, and you talked about if the doctor's satisfied, informed consent, available and funded, uh, and sharing of outcomes as, as the ideal. But, of course, um, when you put up the contrary position about the problems with all of those, that is exactly what we face every time we're looking at one of these interventions is because they're Um, we can't inform parents because we don't know enough about them Um, they're not available they're not funded because there's not the studies to to support that Um, and sharing outcomes is probably just creating uh, more anecdotes or more bad data and so we come down to perhaps some snippets of information so as with evidence and as I said in my comment here then you're you have an automatic framing bias by calling them innovative treatments, but they're not proven as treatments. They're just some sort of intervention with some very loose information. And that's a statement and question. I'll just sort of, it's an Aussie statement, goes up at the end. So that probably is a question.
4: Over to you, Dave.
2: No, that's, that's, that's fine. I got the statement and the question. John, thanks very much. I, I was, I would point out that when the, when, when the Nuffield, uh council held its uh, workshop and then produced its briefing note. one of the f- biggest problems it had was what was the appropriate adjective um and we thought well, any adjective you might use for what was being done was question begging in terms of what it implied such as unproven uh if you said it was novel radical you implied that it was uh interestingly uh, good if you uh simply said it was non-standard, you might imply that it would nevertheless was a treatment but not one that would normally be offered. And I think all these terms are difficult ones. Um, the simple fact is, if in front of you is a patient, be it an adult or a child, who cannot be enrolled into uh, a, a, a trial, and all other forms of treatment are exhausted, do you or do you not go ahead and try uh, a, a treatment that has not been validated, proven? That's that's the, the key question. And I can't see that anything Joe has said has ruled that out um, because his criticism of those forms of treatment is not that they might indeed work and, and save a life or prolong a life. His criticism is they don't provide ample evidence of the efficacy of that treatment. But that's a different kind of criticism from saying, in this particular case, it, it produced a good outcome. And, uh, and one, one comment was, can uh, enrolment in trials be good for the child? Yes, they can, but standardly there's a distinction between therapeutic and non-therapeutic uh, uh, trials, and there are cases in which, uh, uh, for instance, children are administered a placebo to see whether a, a particular treatment works, and clearly that's not going to do any good for them at all, but we gain valuable evidence as a result of uh, of what we do for them.
4: So just picking up on what's happening in chat, David Isaacs has asked... Um, I think a question to Joe. Joe, would you suggest withholding remdesivir from all of those children that Great Ormond Street actually agreed to provide it to, uh, unless they're enrolled in an RCT?
3: Do you see my answer? <laughs> I absolutely am arguing that that's exactly what we should do. However, that is not what we did.
4: Do mm. you want to tell, tell us any more about that, Joe?
3: So- so I think the point is, yes, we should randomise, we should work together, have collective RCTs in children. Where they don't exist, though, you are committed to try and doing the best with the child in front of you. I, the, the problem with that is we are left not knowing whether that treatment works or not. So we should come together and work out for a second wave. And luckily now, recovery has expanded hugely. And I think you know, we now have the opportunity to enrol children into a randomised controlled trial trying interventions. That's exactly the right way forward. So tomorrow we should not just give rendezvous. We should look at recovery and roll the trial, the child into a trial. The problem was at the beginning of the pandemic, they were so busy setting up the trial in adults, quite rightly as well, that children were, as usual, a bit of an oversight. And our centre—it's quite bizarre in the UK—there uh, was an opportunity to randomise child children down to the age of 12, but that was often paired in small units such as I don't know. It would be the equivalent of you guys having, um, I don't want to denigrate anyone on the phone call, but if there's a small hospital in Ayers Rock, somewhere that has five children or something, no ICU, that was the place that could randomise in recovery, and the major children's hospitals couldn't. It was completely to do with who was next to an adult respiratory physician who wanted to randomise, and that has to be sorted out for next time. Um, so randomising children is the way forward. We can enrol, them. we've enrolled since... Um, June so every child has been enrolled since June this was going back to the early days of trying to work out the right thing to do so we now have randomized controlled trials but some of the other evidence is really coming forward and and I think John's just asked we don't have enough for an RCT however internationally globally we may well do with a second wave working with colleagues in Spain Italy and Europe um, perhaps you guys in Melbourne depending on the reach of the study this is a global disease and the way we should tackle it is with global research studies. Uh, I, my slight worry is that kind of populist, get the treatment sorted out, do the right thing for your own country. We saw some of the comments about the vaccine state in the US yesterday and not working with the World Health Organization. That's really chilling because it means we will not end up getting really good collaborative randomized controlled trials. And I think we all have a duty to work together to do that.
5: Uh, Lynn, I've sent a great um, question from Jill Sewell, if I might
3: yes, pop please. in with that.
5: Yep. This is for Dave. You're not off the hook yet over there in Belfast. Um, I think the question for you, Dave, framed by Jill, is the argument that trials means that the child is a means to an end. Uh, should that, or is that indeed an argument against all trials?
2: The simple answer, which is that uh, in the case of adults um, who have the capacity consent to uh, being enrolled and signed up to trials, Uh, they can decide if they want by their participation in a trial to benefit not just themselves or even not themselves, but uh, future generations. That's up to them. It's not the case with children who might be against uh, um, their best interests be enrolled in in a trial to benefit uh, others than the child. There's lots of fancy footwork from both living and dead philosophers has been Engaged in in this particular issue, and that uh, you know children ought to, if they could consent, uh, act so as to benefit uh, future generations. Um, but that seems to me probably absurd. So th- my simple point was: here's a, here's a stark contrast between being in a trial and and being given a new treatment. Um, <laughs> only. Joe, yes, Kant very specifically said that the wrong was to treat someone only as a means to an end. So if the benefit was both to the child and future generation, it doesn't violate Kant's imperative. But if there is no benefit to the child and any benefit is only to future generations, that clearly treats the child as a means to the uh, the good of others. So adults can uh, voluntarily enrol themselves in trials. Children can't. That's the key difference.
4: I'd like to pick up now on a comment uh, that Andreas has made. In chat about children receiving a placebo might do better, and others have been talking about um, randomizing. So, I'm wondering, Joe, if you could fill us in on whether you'd be thinking um, this would be a randomized controlled trial in the sense that there would be a placebo, or would there be standard treatment, and what is Standard treatment. So that's one question. And then to pick up on things that others have said and that was mentioned earlier, particularly by Sarah, um, how would you go about getting consent from parents and what would you do with parents who didn't agree to their child participating in an RCT in the situation where they have COVID 19?
3: I, I can take the second one first. The answer is they wouldn't participate. That's easy. So if parents don't agree to participate, the child doesn't go in the trial unless the child is old enough to decide for themselves when you come back to that.
4: So oh, then sorry. if parents don't agree to for their child to be in the trial, that means the child doesn't get even a fifty percent chance of getting remdesivir.
3: Or fifty percent chance of being harmed by remdesivir. That's the point, you don't know. And right, so, so if, they- if you have the evidence that it should be given to the child, why are you in a study, et cetera? So um, I I think I'd have no problem with a placebo randomized controlled trial, but the placebo happens at the time. It's placebo against the effective drug or or non-effective drug, the drug under um, question. But all the other treatment has to be standard of care. Uh, We're not talking about changing anything else in the control arm. You should get standard of care. And that's what we did in recovery. And the question there is very interesting. So it was one of the most adaptive studies we had. And the other word used that is an adaptive study. So if a child came in or an adult came in because there were more adults than children randomizing that and they got the first treatment randomized and they didn't do well, you wouldn't sit back and say, well, it didn't work. Then you might work on changing the immunosuppression status or doing something else. You capture all that data as part of the study. So it was a treatment where you weren't um, you were blinded to the intervention, but you could then change if the outcome didn't look like it was going well. So there'd be a day two, well, actually, the child is much more inflamed. You've got huge uh, D-dimers. You've got clots everywhere. We're going to add a different treatment in. So it didn't mean you were restricted to not changing treatment as part of the control arm. Uh, but you must describe what you do and justify it. And that, that's very, very important. So the child gets the best possible treatment apart from the randomized drug. And the point yeah. is you don't know. We don't know yeah. if that's effective or not, hence the point of randomization.
4: Yeah. So in fact, the control arm was less controlled than control arms typically are in an RCT. Well, uh,
3: it was adaptive. So yes, you would be able to change treatment as the clinical situation changed. And even at some stage, if you felt the evidence was that the intervention arm, let's say it was a controlled uh, dexamethasone and the child you, you, you thought had been randomized to know dexamethasone was getting worse, there was an option to increase the trial dose or to give dexamethasone. So that level of clinician decision-making was allowed. If you would normally give more steroids in that situation, you could give more steroids.
1: Yeah.
3: More steroids
4: the first time. Yeah, I think that's a clarification. Thanks, Joe. Now, in a couple of minutes, I'd quite like to change tack and go back to the situation Sarah was talking about, the resource allocation problem with the, the two children with the same condition, in a sense, competing for the limited dose of a drug. But before I do that, John or Georgina, we've got other questions that are specifically about this question of RCTs and uh, experimental therapies that you would like to ask or that we've got coming up from the audience. Uh, There's quite a few coming
5: through. There was a question about government funding and whether it should only be provided for treatment for children that are agreeing to be on the trial. Mm. I wonder whether the resource issue in terms of costing or funding comes into it at all
4: uh so joe to clarify um you were getting the drug uh for free
3: free. yeah the company gilead provided that uh for free now the question there is always what comes with that um there was an absolute no data control and whatever happened would be published. It's part of our ethical uh, principles we developed. So the data belongs with the clinicians and they will publish whatever happens with drug. To be fair, Gilead uh, were very, very liberal in their, opinion. of course, it was in their interest in one way. The question there is government funding for the entire child's care. Well, you as well as we have government funded healthcare, you would not stop funding if someone either didn't participate or took a different drug. The only time we've had that discussion is we have had some companies who've provided an intervention that costs. Um, So we had children who had intrathecal or cerebral device put in for Batten's treatment that was not funded by the NHS but was not funded by a drug trial and the company provided bed day costs and intervention costs in terms of operations which was actually really good of them because it, it, there was no need for them to do so and there were children outside the normal indication for that process and the big vulnerability companies have to back them up slightly is if a drug gets a bad rep because you use it in slightly desperate cases there are implications for them in terms of commercial activity in a a drug getting a bad name, as I suggested early on, from those uh, early gurus of randomised controlled trials. Um, so I think the government funding—I'm not quite sure that's a live issue. And I think for children particularly, it, it wouldn't be an issue. The time it has been is when children have wanted um, access to very high, um, highly speculative. Uh, high-cost interventions, so um, CAR T-cells outside of normal indication, either supported or not supported by clinicians, and that's a time when government will just step back and say, this is not funded, and parents might have to go and seek funding for that often overseas.
5: There's a question coming in uh, from Heidi. If there was a new compound that you thought might work based on some pathophysiologic basis was cheap and it had no harm, would it change your view on trialling it? I guess that's
1: over to Dave. Sarah, you've been... Sarah, jump in. So, you know, this is obviously a very interesting sort of issue. And I suppose when you're talking about um, adapting trials on clinical judgment, actually, we're using clinical judgment. We think we're using scientific evidence, but quite often we are amalgamating experience in clinical judgment. So... I don't think it's entirely true to um, correct to base everything on a trial because we have experience of what happens in that situation. Um, and I suppose the other question is then, are we thinking about, from Dave's argument, are we thinking more about, well, if it's not harmful, should we try it? Um, particularly if it's a child with a rare disorder where you know, we, we just aren't going to get a trial. There are many rare disorders we look after in our hospital where a multi-centre trial is still not going to bring up enough patients so should we then be focusing on whether there's a harm element rather than you know is there enough scientific evidence for benefit now think
4: about um one of the situations that you talked about with the the two children who were in a sense competing for the same uh, the dose of the same drug you are we remembering what i'm talking about
3: yeah yeah. i see hugo's comment
4: uh so hugo has said uh the classical two men in the desert with only enough water for one to survive sharing means that none survive so you said that um in that situation your advice was uh rather than give it all to one or all to the other uh give a a shorter course to both children so i've got two questions for you one is exactly hugo's question about was actually worse than not giving um any to To one of them, and the other is about what you told the parents we, we talked about consent at various points, and i 'd be fascinated to know what you tell parents in situations of decisions that are really based on resource constraints.
1: well, in this situation, the clinician was concerned about what he would tell parents if we felt ethically any one child should have the treatment. What I understand he told parents this was limited access to the medication for, for you know, for their child, and they could only give the course that was available. So, um, but yeah, I think we very much stray away from resource um, implications in our ethics discussion, it's always the elephant in the room, so to speak, people are thinking about resource in terms of, you know, a child who's carrying on intensive care, where there's really, really poor outcome. But we, I think, generally, we seem to shy away from that. I don't know if there are any other comments about that. So, Dave or Joe, should we shy away from that
4: or should we be more open with parents about the resource considerations?
1: I,
2: I mean, Joe may want to say something. I, this is a slightly tangential answer, but I think I alluded to the question of crowdfunding. And I think one of the things that we, we increasingly have to face it with parents saying, okay, what effectively you're saying is there's no available treatment that you're prepared to, to fund for my child. Well, I'll go on and find money myself and I'll do so with many other people. Uh, and that has happened um and you have it in a context where there are people pre- prepared to offer the treatment but not let's say <clears throat> in the host jurisdiction of, of, of the parents and they, they want to travel I think there are very real and difficult ethical issues so I don't think you can shy away from these issues of um finance resource allocation and there are there simply are costs of offering certain kinds of treatments and there are questions of prioritization
3: yeah, I, I would just argue that cost is not just financial it can also be a burden to the child the harm of invasive treatment other stuff continuing so i guess that's that's the you know, the issue there is uh, about that child but also other children who might be able to use that resource particularly we're talking about pandemic situation and one of the debates we had was well, what about sma treatments at a million dollars a year whatever it is um to enable a treatment outside the primary indication what about all the other children or grown-ups who could benefit i mean We sit here in a country where, like it or not, uh, 50,000 conservative estimate older people died and many of them did not get the availability of life-sustaining treatment that may have improved their outcome, could have led to some of them surviving. So, you know, we were restricting access to treatment. We certainly had restrictive access to um, oncology care. We've had delayed other operations to try and spend lots of money on speculative treatment uh, at this time, really makes the argument very clear for everybody. But that's always the same argument. We've always had restrictive restrictions on treatment in some way, shape or form. The question is how open and honest you are about it. I think there's a nice document from the ATS with SCCM others years ago about being honest with parents and families about the costs of treatment. And that is part of the ethical discussion about whether to offer very expensive treatments. But it's not the only part of that argument. I think mean, that's the, the final bit.
4: Thanks, Joe. We might fire that document up and m- make it available for our, yeah. Uh, yeah. for our audience. I think that would be uh, really interesting to have a look at. Look, unfortunately, we're pretty much out of time, just as I was about to launch into um, another set of questions. Um, so we're going to need to call things formally to a close. Um, I have just found that incredibly intellectually challenging this Mm. discussion and I actually still don't know what I think I'm quite in many ways persuaded by Dave's argument that we've got to prioritise the child in front of us who may not have any other chance on the other hand I feel also persuaded by um, Joe's argument that um, we need to protect future children from harm done by uh, caused by treatments which haven't got an evidence base and end up in the long run Being harmful. So I really don't know where I sit. Um, Anyone in the audience, if you uh, have the answer to that question, please put it in chat now so I can sleep easy tonight. Otherwise, could you join with me in thanking Dave, Sarah and Joe for a really fascinating session.
0: That was Dr. Joe Briley, Dr. Sarah Eilert and Professor David Archard discussing the ethics of innovative therapy for COVID-19. The National Children's Bioethics Conference is brought to you by the Royal Children's Hospital Children's Bioethics Centre. The conference was supported by the generous donations of the Friends of the Children's Bioethics Centre. If you enjoyed the podcast or the conference, please support our work by joining the Friends. The podcast was produced by Creative Services at Royal Children's Hospital. If you would like to know more about the Children's Bioethics Centre or join us in 2021 for our 13th National Children's Bioethics Conference. Look us up on the website at www.rch.org.au forward slash bioethics. Essential ethics. Be inspired.